Let's open up Psalm 32. This is a psalm written by David, and this is the word of God for us this morning. Psalm chapter 32, we're going to be reading all the verses, verses 1 through 11. This is the word of God. David writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray to you and we would ask that you in your grace and your love for us, that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us. Jesus, in one of your last prayers on earth, you pled with your Father in heaven. You said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And as for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. God, that is our heart's longing, that you would sanctify us by your truth, that this word written by David some 3,000 years ago would penetrate our hearts now and make us people who long to follow you, worship you, adore you, and be set apart for your service and for your honor in this world. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. One of the best-selling books over the last 10 years is the book Unbroken. It's written by Lauren Hildenbrand. It's a phenomenal book, and it's a true story. If you've read it, it's about a 1,000 pages of the story of one man. His name was Louis Zamperini. And it's a true story. It's uh, Zamperini uh, was a former track star. He competed in the 1936 Berlin Olympics. He was enlisted to fight in World War II shortly after that. He survived a plane crash over the Pacific Ocean. He spent 40 days adrift in the Pacific Ocean. After that, he was shot at by a Japanese aircraft in the middle of the ocean. He was attacked by sharks in the middle of the ocean. He actually speared, he speared a seagull out of the air and tried to eat it while he was adrift in the Pacific. He thought it was so disgusting, so gross, that he threw up as a result, making himself further dehydrated. He was on the raft as he saw his friends die next to him, watched his friends drink water that would poison their system. And after all of this, after all of that, he was rescued only to be captured shortly after by Japanese forces and was detained as a prisoner of war. 
He was tortured. He was neglected. He was starved. He suffered from dysentery countless times, and he was abused day and night by prison guards. And his main abuser, this is who a lot of the story is devoted to, his main abuser was a man by the name of Matashiro Watanabe. The prisoners had a nickname for him, though. His name was The Bird. One prisoner of war who was captive alongside Zamperini, his name was Tom Henling Wade, and describing The Bird... He put it in graphic terms. He said the bird took pride in his sadism and would become so carried away with his attacks that saliva would bubble around his mouth as he brought down blows on his victims. And during this nightmarish ordeal, Zamperini is quoted as looking up to God and saying, God, if you get me through this, I swear I'll dedicate my whole life to you. But God, and by God's deliverance, Zamperini, he did. He made it out of Japan alive. And after just two years of this punishing captivity, it's this riveting record of one man's survival and resilience and redemption, hence the title, Unbroken. And it was actually made into a movie. And the movie ends there. If you've seen the movie, it, it ends at that point with Zamperini making it out of prison alive. But the book doesn't end there. The book continues on. And the book details how this seemingly unbreakable man was actually being broken and tortured from the inside out. Because after Zamperini gets out of prison, he goes home. And he recounts how this inner hatred for the bird consumed his thoughts and anger. It filled his heart. And the trauma that he experienced as a prisoner of war under Watanabe destroyed his marriage. It led to alcoholism. Zamperini drinking himself to oblivion, drinking himself to near death. It resulted in him losing almost all of his earnings and get-rich-quick schemes. And Zamperini, this seemingly unbreakable man externally, a man with almost superhuman self-will and determination was finally brought to his breaking point, being gnawed away from the inside out over this unforgiveness that, re that resided in his heart. And it was at that place, it was at that place for Zamperini, this place not of unbroken perseverance, but this place of abject brokenness, that Zamperini did the one thing he knew he had to do. He had to ask for forgiveness, and he had to extend forgiveness. He had to ask forgiveness from God. He recounts when he went to a Billy Graham crusade. He said he dropped to his knees, and for the first time in his life, he truly humbled himself before the Lord. He said, I asked him to forgive me for not having kept the promises I'd made during the war and for my sinful life. I made no excuses. I did not rationalize. I did not blame I took God at his word and begged him for forgiveness and asked Jesus to come into my life. And the book ends with Zamperini extending the forgiveness that he had received from God. He travels to Japan and he confronts his accuser and his abuser, Watanabe himself, the bird, and he extends forgiveness to this man. And now, if you've read the story, you know that I'm not doing it justice. It's, it's an amazing story of how one person can well up the strength, and I would say supernaturally well up the strength, to extend forgiveness to a person who had done countless wrongs to him. 
And I think the reason that, that that story and that movie resonate with us so much is because those kind of stories of forgiveness are almost unheard of today, aren't they? In fact, the Washington Post recently ran a story, and the title of it was, We Are No Longer Capable of Forgiving Our Enemies. And the writer of this, her name's Elizabeth Brunig, she cites the back and forth between liberals who cherish and promote tolerance and conservatives who cherish and promote Christian virtues like forgiveness. And these two camps are in a race to see who can cancel the most people on the other side of the aisle. She says that we find ourselves perpetually scanning the horizon for things to be disruptively furious about. The habit we're in, she says, is one of waging small-scale wars via celebrity censures, and it's made us nearly incapable of forgiving our enemies. And she ends by saying, if forgiveness had a face, it would be hideous to us now. I, I think the author's right. I think the author's right. After all, when you look at headlines, what is more common? Is it more common to see somebody asking for forgiveness, pleading sincerely for forgiveness, or do you see more headlines on an insistence that a person should be deplatformed? Or do you see headlines that are stories of two people who disagree, who have ideologically completely opposed views, finding forgiveness for the other person, being charitable toward another person, or do you see headlines that are calls for those people who are different from us to be canceled or for those people to be silenced? And we face even a bigger problem as well because even when somebody is forgiven, even when somebody is graciously received back into welcoming society, we face another problem because the past now can no longer be the past. Because of the internet, one year after an incident happened, all it takes is one person who didn't hear of the instance a year ago to drum that story back up and start the outrage cycle all over again. And here's what I'd wager. As hard as it is for us as a culture, as a society, and just as individuals, as, as hard as it is for us to extend forgiveness, I'd actually wager that asking forgiveness, asking our, the people that we've hurt, to forgive us might even be more challenging because to extend forgiveness, right, to extend forgiveness to another person requires that we set aside our right to prosecute and to punish. But in order to ask for forgiveness, it requires us to set aside our pride and our self-righteousness. I don't know which one's harder, but I think asking for forgiveness might be the trickier bit. Ask yourself this, which is more difficult for you? Is it more difficult for you to forgive your political opponent or to tell your political and cultural opponent that you were wrong and they were right? I think the, the latter might be a little bit more challenging. So this morning we're looking at this final psalm, and if you were listening well as we were reading through this psalm, it is all about forgiveness. And this psalm is a little bit different. This psalm is actually a wisdom psalm, which means it, it recounts one idea for us to consider. It wants us to think about one central idea and have us turn it over in our minds and look at it from different angles. And David's instruction or his wisdom in this psalm is simply one point. It's just one point that he wants us to consider. And he's going to give us this one point about forgiveness and give us one conclusion as a result. So that's where we're going this morning. 
And in case you're watching your clock, point one is going to be pretty long. Point two is going to be, you know, very short. So if you're thinking, oh, wow, point two, and we're 40 minutes in, don't worry, there's relief. (laughs) David's one point, his point of wisdom this morning is this. It's only the forgiven are truly happy. Only the forgiven are truly happy. And you see that right away in the first stanza of what David writes. In verse 1, David writes this word twice. He says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. And that word, you heard it repeated twice, that word, blessed, is the Hebrew word, asher. And it carries this different weight from how we think of blessedness today. Usually, when we use the word blessedness today, or blessed, or we are uh, experiencing blessing, we think, that, we think of things that are tangible or material. So we think of, for instance, our children. And we think, wow, our children are great sleepers. That is such a blessing. That is something the Neelands have never said before. Actually, I'm just kidding. Our kids are great sleepers, except for when they're not, and that is all the time. We, we speak about other tangible material things, like our dream houses as well. We say, oh, what a blessing. The offer we put in for our house, 15000 under asking price was accepted. What a blessing. Again, something Coloradans have never said. And certainly, certainly those things are wonderful gifts of God, aren't they? They are blessings with a lowercase b. But they, they really don't, the way that we commonly speak about this term doesn't get your arms around what this word really means because a share in the Bible is more concerned with spiritual wholeness, spiritual flourishing. And you can see this, if you remember, back in Psalm chapter one. The very first Psalm we went through started with this word as well, a share. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. When a person delights in who God is, when a person delights in God's word, that person is truly blessed. They have a flourishing that goes beyond tangible and material welfare. You see that? Or you can take another Psalm of David. This is Psalm 21, and there David is talking about the king of Israel. And he's talking about the blessedness of the king of Israel. And it's not in how big his palace is. It's not in how many lands he's conquered. Instead, Psalm 21 says, For you make him the king most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. See, the Bible repeatedly, over and over again, says, This is what true blessing looks like. It's a spiritual blessing, a happiness that's gained by being in the presence of the Lord. And what David really figured out 3,000 years ago is kind of corroborated by secular research today. Jonathan Haidt, that name might sound familiar to some of you, he wrote a book in 2006 called The Happiness Hypothesis. And in that book, he, he recounts Two people. He draws a sketch of two people. These are real-life people. The first sketch is a man named Bob. Bob is 35 years old. He's single. He's white. He's attractive and athletic. He makes $100,000 a year, and he lives in Southern California, where the sun is always shining. He's highly intellectual. He spends his free time reading and going to museums. That's sketch number one. But then he gives us sketch number two. And this is a woman 
whose name is Mary. Mary and her husband live in snowy Buffalo, New York. Not, <laughs> not the promised land. $40,000 a year is their combined income. She's 65 years old. She is constantly on dialysis for kidney problems. She's black and she's overweight. And she spends most of her free time attending church activities. And now, Height says he would wager that if he were to go and poll 100 people, 100 of those people would say they would rather be Bob instead of Mary. But Height concludes by saying this, Bob seems to have it all. And few readers of this book would prefer Mary's life to his. Yet if you had to bet your life savings on it, you should bet that Mary is happier than Bob. He goes on to say, Frequent church participation and belief in God supply a battery of psychological goods that enable Mary to beat out her more privileged counterpart, Bob, when it comes to being happy. Isn't that fascinating? Here is David, 3,000 years ago, with this insight of true blessedness, and it's corroborated by modern psychological research, that those who are truly happy are not necessarily those who have tangible material welfare here, who find their happiness in lowercase b, blessings, but who have their true happiness in the uppercase b, blessings of God, spiritual blessings. And if you look at the history of Christianity, this was actually considered a dominant characteristic of Christians. That they did not seek their blessedness, their welfare, or their happiness in any of the lowercase b blessings of this world. There was a man, his name was Celsus, he was a philosopher, he wrote in the year 177 AD, and at that time, Christians were starting to grow as a religious movement. And he counted this, this mindset of Christians to look at their blessedness and spiritual things as a strike against Christianity. He wrote this, the Christian movement is a movement of ignorant, unintelligent, uninstructed, and foolish persons. They think that it's such as these that are worthy of their God. Their whole focus is to gain over the silly, the mean, the stupid, the women, and the children. Why don't you say what you really think, Celsus? In other words, Celsus was saying, hey, look at Christians. They are filled with poor, mournful, meek, persecuted, and altogether unimpressive people. People who do not find their ultimate blessedness in their level of education, or their economic status, or their social power, or their human achievement, or any other material or tangible blessings. And guess what? They're truly happy as a result. They're truly happy as a result. And you can see examples of this today. In fact, I was reading a Christian magazine just the other day, and it was telling the story of an Australian swimmer. This Australian swimmer was very promising in his craft. At 18, he would started competing professionally. But at 18, he was diagnosed with an aggressive form of leukemia. And now, 11 years later, he's 29. He's cancer-free, but he's living with a debilitating chronic condition as the result of his cancer treatments. And he suffers from chronic pain that keeps him from sleeping, from traveling, from exercising. He spends hours each week in the hospital, and nobody can tell him whether or not he will ever get better. Nonetheless, at the end of this article, he recounts all of his blessings, something that our parents tell us to do very often, right? And he says, quote, I am blessed. 
I am blessed because I know the utter certainty and conviction that my heavenly Father loves me and knows what is ultimately good for me. I am blessed because I walk closely with God, daily driven to my knees in prayer. I am blessed because I recognize my weakness and dependence on God. I am blessed because I am forced to collapse regularly into God's sustaining arms and to experience firsthand that Jesus is truly enough. I am remarkably blessed. Now let me ask you, do you want to be truly happy? That's hard to say after reading a story like that, but again, modern psychological research, David's insights three millennia ago, oh, and the words of Jesus who says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. All of them point in one direction. The truly blessed are those who find a spiritual blessing, well, a well that is much deeper than the tangible and material blessings that we look to today. And the answer to your, that question, do you want to be truly happy? The answer to that question is going to be determined a lot by how you respond to what David says, the rest of what David says in verses 1 and 2. Remember, David said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no no deceit. See, intellectually, we say, of course, of course I want to be happy. Of course, I want a life of true happiness. But what David has come to realize is that the threshold to true happiness, the bridge that you have to go over in order to be truly happy, means that you have to do something that very few people are willing to do, and that is admit that you need forgiveness. It's to admit that you need your transgression forgiven and you need your iniquity covered. It means that you need the guilt and pollution that resides in you to be washed away by God. And I think one commentator, her name is Tish Harrison Warren, she put it well. She said, one of the things that's most difficult to swallow about Christianity in our day is the idea that normal, nice people are sinners, that we are born sinful and can't elude being a sinner by being moral or religious enough. That's difficult to swallow, isn't it? It's humbling to believe that no matter how nice or moral or religious we become or still are, at bottom, we are still sinners in need of forgiveness for God. And you might find this hard to believe, but I live with sinners. Um, One is seven years old, the other is five years old, and we have two three-year-old sinners. And as a parent, as a parent, it is so easy to see how they need forgiveness. I mean, it is as obvious as day. It takes 10 minutes into my morning to realize that they have an anger problem. (laughs) I start cooking breakfast, and child number one comes up, and in a dull groan, more in a protest, says, I'm hungry. And I'm saying, that's great. I'm making breakfast for you right now. But 30 seconds after, child two comes up, tears in her eyes, saying child number three stole the toy that she was playing with. Then shortly thereafter, child three will come up, crying as well, saying that child number two stole the toy from her. And then child number two says, no, child number three stole the toy from child number two. And then again, child one, again, this time not so much in a dull groan, but in an angry demand, says, I'm hungry, dad. All the while, my only thought is, thank you, Lord, that child number four is not awake yet. (laughs) Meanwhile, child two and child three have resulted to screaming at one another at a pitch so high that you can't replicate it by any known sound. So 
the girls are screaming back and forth at one another. And then finally, child four wakes up and starts screaming, Mom, get me out of my room. And me, my response is to stop all the yelling. I yell in response, stop yelling. <laughs> Anybody ever been there? And my wife comes downstairs and I complain, where did they get this from? You know what makes this so humbling is that here I am, I'm an adult, I'm a parent, I'm a respectable, moral, and religious person, and I still need the same thing that this seven and five and three-year-old need, which is at my core, I need to be washed as a sinner in need of forgiveness and grace. And here's why David says, here's the reason, only the forgiven are truly happy, because when you do not realize that about yourself... When you insist, I'm okay, I'm, I'm right, I, I didn't do anything wrong, or I'm, I'm not as bad as her, I say that all the time, when we don't believe we need forgiveness, we actually waste away from the inside out. Something gnaws away at us from the inside of us. David recounts that experience in personal testimony in verse 3. He says, for when I kept silent... When I didn't acknowledge this about myself, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. David isn't explicit about this in Psalm 32, but many people see a connection between this psalm and Psalm 32 and one of David's most infamous and ignomious sins, the sin that he committed with a woman named Bathsheba. If you're familiar with the story, David was king of Israel, and his army is off fighting. It's during the springtime, and he decides to let his army go out, and he stays in Jerusalem instead. And he's walking on the roof in the middle of the day, and he looks off into the distance, and he sees this woman bathing on her roof. And looking at her, he wonders, who is this woman? He finds her very beautiful, so he asks some people who are in his court who this woman is, and he's told that that's Bathsheba. Bathsheba is the wife of one of your soldiers, Uriah the Hittite. So David, using his power as king, he asks his people to go and get Bathsheba, brings her back to his palace, and he sleeps with her, committing adultery. And a couple weeks passed, and David thinks that the event is over. He's king, after all. This thing wasn't very uncommon in his culture throughout his day. But he receives word a couple weeks after that that Bathsheba is pregnant. And it's going to be very obvious to Uriah that that is not his child. So David hatches a plot. He tells the leader of his army, his name is Joab, he tells the leader of his army to send Uriah to the front of the battle where the fighting is the most fierce. And then when everybody else pulls back, keep Uriah in the front and allow a stone to fall onto his head. And that's exactly what happens. Uriah dies in an instant, and David, right there, thinks... Okay, it's all over. Yes, I committed adultery, which then led to first-degree murder. But David thought, if I cover this up, if I cover it up, my adultery and my merger, and nobody knows, surely I'll be okay. If I continue to insist that I am a moral, religious, and nice person, then all will be well. Has anybody else had similar thoughts? Have you ever thought, if I don't tell anybody, if I can delete that, if she never finds out that I said that about her, if nobody sees what I've done, or if I dole myself enough with enough entertainment, enough Netflix, enough scrolling, or if I busy myself with media of some sort, then I'll be okay? David says it doesn't work that way. 
David says, when he kept silent, his bones wasted away through his groaning all day long. The sin he was silent about on the inside, inside there's this dull groan, groaning every waking hour on the inside, and he knows he's guilty, and it's gnawing away at him from the inside out. But then there's a turn in verse 4, because David says, that dull groaning, that ache, that feeling of guilt that's burning inside his chest, he says that that is actually a wonderful thing. What that is, is that is the hand of God graciously pressing in on David from the inside out to draw David back to God himself. Verse four, David says, for day and night, it was your hand that was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. When we sin, right? We, we want to turn our conscience down, don't we? Like when I'm driving in the car with my kids, we're listening to the Greatest Showman soundtrack, and it's a very loud soundtrack. They want it up to 37. I want it down to 21 at least, or preferably zero, but they want it back up, back to 37, back to 45. We want to turn our consciences down like that, but God in his grace, no, he turns it up on those whom he loves. He turns David's conscience up so that David's strength is worn down like a person who is exhausted from the summer heat. He's sapped of energy. He can't escape God's hand upon him. And in reality, when you think about it, one of the worst things that God can possibly do to a person is to be silent to a sinner and leave them to themselves. Heard this story of a pastor a friend of mine who had a friend in college and this friend had been married for the same time that he had and the friend was entrapped in this adulterous relationship that he was in for about a decade. And finally, after 10 years, it came out into the open that this man was having an affair and they tried to build back the pieces of their relationship. So this pastor and his friend met weekly for accountability, but as happens, the pastor got a new call across the across the United States, and he had to move away from his friend. But the pastor wanted to keep in touch. He made regular phone calls to his friend. He asked him how he was doing. But as time and distance started to increase, unfortunately, the friend of his drove headfirst back into a life of sexual sin. And this pastor says, I'll never forget the last phone call that I had with him. He said, Pastor, I know I should feel bad about this, but I simply don't. I simply don't feel bad anymore. Left to ourselves, we can turn our conscience down so low that even something as grave and painful as adultery or divorce or broken relationships, they no longer bother us. But God, in his grace, turns up our conscience he turns up the conscience of those he loves and he reminds them by placing his hand heavily upon them that at bottom we are still, no matter how holy we get, no matter how righteous we think we become, no matter how much we sin against God, in fact, we are still sinners in need of God's forgiveness and grace. That is the heavy hand of the Lord on your conscience if you feel that. And it is a work of God's mercy and his grace that no matter how nice or moral or religious you are, you, like David, are in need of forgiveness. And David says, hey, that feeling 
of God's heavy hand on him, which gnawed away at him from the inside, that brought him to a breaking point. And he acknowledged to God, he is not King David the righteous, but he is David the sinner in need of forgiveness and grace. He says, verse 5, that he acknowledged his sin to God. He said he didn't try to cover it. He no longer tries to cover over it with good deeds or he didn't try and be silent about it. And when he does, he says he finds a God who forgives, a God who doesn't handle him roughly, a God who doesn't scowl or scold him. He doesn't lash out at David, but he finds a God who loves sinners like David, a God whose forgiveness and mercy far exceeds David's sin. Some of you already know this story. When I was in high school, I got a 24-point speeding ticket. Um, and it wasn't just speeding. <laughs> but what I had done is I was driving on private property, and it happened to be an oil field up in Frederick. And I came out of driving on public property. I ran a stop sign. I was driving with people in my car. I was speeding, and about four or five other things in there. And... I had to go before this judge, and it's an intimidating thing to go before a judge to hear what the ruling's going to be. After all, this was a 24-point ticket. I only spent five years in jail for it. <laughs> no, but the, the thing is, is going before this judge, right, I felt this need, this real desire to plead my innocence, because if I could plead my innocence, then I would be not guilty, David is saying when it comes to our relationship with God, this cosmic judge, that the relationship is completely backwards. Instead of pleading our innocence to be cleared of guilt, David is saying if you confess your guilt before God, you will be cleared of your guilt. Expose your sin to God. Expose your guilt before God, and it's then at that area of brokenness that you can actually be truly forgiven and truly blessed. I'm reminded of Martin Luther. Some of you know that name. He was a 16th century monk. He used to drive his fellow monks crazy because he would go into the confessional booth. He would, he would confess every minute detail of sin that he could possibly think of, and he would leave the confessional booth, and then all of a sudden an improper thought would pop into his head, and he'd go right back into the confessional booth. He would confess everything, big and small, and that's because Luther understood this to be true about God, that God is just that God is a just God. And it drove him crazy looking over his shoulder to know that this just God never took his eyes off of him. And if God is a just God, then he knew God will by no means ever overlook sin. So let's not be mistaken here. Luther illustrates something very true about God. That God is a just judge. And when God forgives our sin and transgression, he does not just sweep it under a rug and pretend like it never happened. That's not how God forgives sin. No, God demands that his justice be satisfied and that the penalty of our sin be punished, either punished in us or punished into another. David knew that. David, in fact, he was the king of Israel, so he saw the religious ceremonies of the people of Israel. He was a godly man, and he knew that once a year during the Day of Atonement, the religious people of Israel would come. They present a sacrificial offering before God. They would put their hands over that offering. They would confess their sins over that offering, and all of their guilt, all of their iniquity, all of their transgression, all of their sinfulness would go to this sacrificial animal and they would kill the animal as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. It was this image of the guilt and poison of sin rushing out of a person 
and as a response, then being cleared of this wonderful guilt. And Luther, Luther, his sense of guilt drove him as well to the Bible, not just to the Day of Atonement, to, but to the great Lamb of God, Jesus himself, who was the other man, the one who took our sin, the one who took our guilt, the one who took our transgression in our place, and the justice of God and the penalty of our sin fell on the head of Jesus and was spilled by his blood. And in Jesus, through faith in him, we are simultaneously at bottom sinners, but also simultaneously forgiven in God's sight. In Jesus, God is both just and merciful. That's the God we worship. And that's why David can describe God not as a vengeful judge in verse 7, but he knows him as a welcoming and embracing father. Look at the terms that David uses to describe God. He says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Jesus said something similar in his ministry, that God is not vengeful toward repentant sinners. No, he shouts over them with shouts of deliverance. Jesus said, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. God rejoices and shouts of deliverance over any person, any sinner who wants to come to him. He loves to be a hiding place for wounded sinners. God longs to preserve groaning sinners with wounded, gnawing consciences. God even rejoices with shouts of deliverance over one sinner who turns back to be forgiven because his justice has been satisfied already in Jesus. The penalty has already been paid, not by us, but by God himself in Jesus, taking it for us. So blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. And it's only those who are forgiven who are truly happy. That's David's one point. Looked at from multiple different angles, interior, guilt, gnawing away at David, the expression of forgiveness, the coming clean for once in his life. And it's from that one point that David draws one conclusion. David says, hey, if only the forgiven are truly happy, and if only the forgiven can know true blessedness, then his conclusion is simple. He says, be forgiven while you still can. He says it in verse 6. He says it clearly. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when he may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. That idea of waters, this rush of great waters, it's this image of a flood, which is common in the Bible. And flood waters in the Bible are symbolic of God's judgment. There was the book of Exodus where God's enemies were plunged into the deep of the Red Sea. But the most notable plunge... The most notable rush of great waters in the Bible was by far the story of Noah in the book of Genesis. Noah is told by God to build this ark. And God tells Noah that a flood is coming because of sin. God is going to judge the world. He is going to flood the world and start over again. And in a sudden rush of great waters, there will be no forgiveness for anyone who's outside of the ark. And the flood of God's judgment does not reach Noah and his family, but the rush of great waters buries the rest of humanity and all animal life, all plant life is brought back to square one. I remember the first time I saw this painting. It was The Deluge by Francis Danby. There's going to be a picture of it right here. 
It's this painting of the Genesis flood. You can see there's a horde of people huddled around a mountain. And you get the sense that this mountain will soon be underwater. You look at the expressions of people, their faces, the desperation as they're clawing to try to get to the highest point. Some are barely hanging on as it is. And in the background, in the far distance, you see the outline of the ark built by Noah. And that image is behind David's words, his conclusion in verse 6. Be forgiven while you still can, while God still may be found. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to him while he still may be found. Surely the rush of great waters shall never reach them. We need to confess our sin while we can still find forgiveness. If you don't confess your sin to God... What David is saying is there may come a day when you're unable to, just like the people in the day of Noah. But God loves to be a hiding place for wounded sinners. He loves to rejoice over them with shouts of deliverance over one sinner who turns to be forgiven. God loves to forgive sin, but he will not do so forever. He will come again to judge. And so David concludes, he he pleads with whoever We'll hear it. Verse 9, he says, Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. I don't know if any of you have undertaken riding a horse. When we went up to Breckenridge one time, we decided we're going to go ride horses with the family because it sounded like a fun thing to do. And the guy looked at me and said, Hey, you're a strapping young man. You get to ride Tornado. So I get on Tornado, and Tornado... Uh, let's just say he was a little bit ornery. And they gave you all of these tips on how to control Tornado, right? But Tornado, he looked at me, and in one second, he's like, I don't respect this fellow at all. <laughs> and so Tornado's eating every flower that he sees, you know, he's, he's chasing bunnies off, and he's just being, you know, Tornado, hence the nickname. And David is saying here, hey, there is an orneriness, this welling up of pride in us that wants to refuse to admit who we truly are, that we are sinners who need to humble ourselves. He's saying, hey, don't be the kind of person who needs to be forced by God into his grace. Instead, submit to God's grace. Humble yourself. After all, there is no amount of goodness, niceness, morality, or religion that can make us Forgiven and righteous before God. God loves to forgive sinners. They're the only type of people that he is interested in. And any barrier that stands between you and God has been removed by Jesus completely. Guilt, shame, transgression, sin, iniquity. That's why David uses them all. He wants all of those terms, no matter what you feel, he wants you to know that they have been removed and blessed is the one who is forgiven. And here's the one thing, is the one objection people always have. I I know, I know that to be true, but I want to wait. I want to wait until I'm better. I want to wait until I'm better to come before God. But friends, here's the thing. If you wait until you're better, if you wait until you're more holy or you're more righteous or until you trust God more, friends, if you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. You never will. It's because Jesus said he came to save sinners. And true happiness only comes to sinners and those who embrace that they are sinners who at bottom 
need forgiveness and a happiness beyond anything they can find in this world. One point, only the forgiven are truly happy. One conclusion, be forgiven while you still can. Jesus loves to embrace and call and to forgive sinners like you and me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that word that you are kind, you are gracious. You came as the great physician not to call those who are well because none of us are well. We are all sinful, broken, depraved, transgressors, filled with iniquity. God, we know that to be true about ourselves. Our conscience probes at us and gnaws at us. So God, we pray in your grace, do not leave us where we are. We pray that you would call us again afresh to yourself, that we would seek this great blessedness that you offer us here, that we would know the forgiveness of sins to be cleansed of all of our unrighteousness. And Jesus, we thank you for being the one who took our guilt, took our sin upon yourself to be punished for it. And Lord, we pray, would you please soften our hearts, turn up our conscience, Help us turn back to you to experience this great blessing. And we pray lastly, Lord, for any of us here that do not know you, that do not know what it means to be forgiven of sins, that do not know that blessing, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict those consciences. We pray that you would turn those hearts to you and they would experience the love, the grace, the forgiveness, and the kindness of you, our great God and King. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, our Savior, the righteous sacrifice for sins. Amen.